Welcome to the first Chewing the Fat podcast, where I get to chat with interesting people on interesting things. My name is Theo Priestley, and I'm a futurist, author, and associate fellow with the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. And with me today is J.P. Castlin, the chief executive of an international consultancy, Rouser, and who is a globally recognized authority on strategy, a columnist for Marketing Week, and a popular keynote speaker. He has delivered talks at events all over the world, from Reykjavik to Mumbai, London to Dubai, and always entertainingly a no-nonsense approach. Both a marketer and a lawyer, he is known for a firm belief in critical thinking, observable evidence, and complete freedom from hype, which is something I absolutely love. Welcome, JP. Thank you very much, Theo. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Now, you run Rouser, which you describe as an un-agency. Could you give us a bit more background on what that means? Right, absolutely. So, um, and this, I need to do a bit of decoupling here first so that people don't think that I speak about all agencies because I don't, but I speak about a lot of them. Now, the problem with it with, in terms of strategy when it comes to agencies is that they don't, either they don't understand strategy or they boil it down to something that is so simplistic that it's not actually strategy. It has to do with the business model and the fact that a lot of agencies use a lot of junior people and these people don't understand strategy. So it's easier for them to do their work if, you know, strategy is reduced to a big idea or three words or whatever it is, right? The problem with that, if you, like I do, actually do proper strategy, quote unquote proper strategy, is that sometimes clients expect you to to deliver something, you know, a three-word strategy, whatever it is, and then you have to explain that, no, that's not actually how strategy works. Uh, and so the whole unagency thing is basically a way for us to distance ourselves from the likes of those agencies. Um, now, whether positioning is something that clients actually uh, view or not is very much up for debate. But again, the idea is just to actually, we do, quote, unquote, larger strategic things like global strategy, business strategy, corporate strategy, da 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 we don't do the campaign stuff, big idea thing uh, that the agencies do. So on agencies, just we're not like them, basically. Okay, so we're living in pretty uncertain and weird times at the moment. Mm. I'm going to mention the coronavirus for obvious reasons, because I think it's going to change the nature of business and how people do business for a long time to come, whether it's working from home, whether it's how we treat um, our marketing and branding in you know, in situations like this, do you envisage from a brand strategy pers- uh, perspective a change in approach in how people are going to be conducting uh, brand and, and marketing over the next sort of 12 months? Um, I think there will have to be some changes um, in the grand scheme of things. We're probably going to see less investment into, for example, you know, out of home just because there are fewer people on the streets. So that would make sense. Um, but I think we're also going to see a slight change in consumer behavior, or at least I would imagine uh, that we're going to see a slight change. We're going to see less uh, physical stores actually selling things, of course, or rather uh, less or fewer people buying from physical stores, you know, as to being encouraged to stay at home. That might shift consumerism to, for example, online to a large degree. Um, I think it's going to be something that it'll change for the next six, 12 months, however long this, this virus thing is intended to go on for. Uh, eventually, things will go back to the way that they were because, you know, there's a sort of equilibrium at play. But yes, indeed, short term, I think we're going to see slight changes in how people behave and we're going to have to tailor our marketing accordingly. What do you think of brands who are taking advantage of the the viral situation at the moment and launching some campaigns centered on basically piggybacking on the 
the news and using you know various hashtags and uh, and um, news items to focus in on their product do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing uh no i think it's it's probably a, a bad thing uh, quite sort of morally depro- deplorable to be honest because of course if you're using the hashtags used for for example information about the virus you're basically obfuscating potential life-saving information which is not a very good move to do um now you could take a more of a macro approach i suppose and argue that well if brands are doing well they're you know they might be able to employ more people or actually pay salaries and so on and so forth but nonetheless i think that if you're exploiting what is quite literally uh something that is lethal and is something that's you know it's turned into a pandemic then i and i don't think that that the world is going to judge you positively um you know once the new the sort of the news news break rather i think you should just do what you can to help i mean if you look at lmh for example what they've done is they've turned all their perfume factors into well well basically they're just creating now um you know hand sanitizing things and just handing it out for free to the french government now that's the way the brands can help that's you know something that is to be admired but just piggybacking on it and and trying to turn it into a you know, a financial opportunity for yourself is I can see the sort of the, the financial reasoning behind it, but it's it's from purely moral standpoint, it's quite deplorable. Does that even include, you know, so the example that you gave just now, you know, t- turning um, existing products or your existing product line and pivoting to, to create hand sanitizers for the public and the government, would that also include companies who can offer a service that will support people in in this time. So, for example, companies that have software that um, allow you to work from home, do you think that them taking advantage is something slightly different than someone who is taking advantage for financial reasons? I think that that it's, I mean, if you're talking about taking advantage, you can easily interpret that as exploiting. I think if you look at, for example, what Zoom is doing at the moment, that Zoom obviously being the, the U.S. sort of online meeting tool. Uh, their CEO actually went out after the. I mean, they've seen their sales just soar recently, uh, and but their CEO actually went out and said, "Yeah, but let's not ramp up our, our promotions and sales at the moment because that will be effectively exploiting this this ongoing problem, and you know that's not exactly good. Neither good culture nor good leadership. So, although they are seeing their sales increase again quite dramatically." Uh, they're, they're, they are actively trying to avoid being perceived as exploiting this thing, which again, I think you know, I think that's the way to do it. If you're trying to help people out and, and meet needs, then that's fine and, and fair enough. But if you're again trying to piggyback on what is literally a pandemic, then you know, I think you're going to have some moral issues uh, or moral questions to, to deal with. Of course, then the question becomes whether. Moral is re- or morality is really something for businesses to consider, and you know we're into another kind of conversation. But nonetheless, I wouldn't recommend a client to do it, uh, at least not for PR purposes at the moment. Now, you and I both do keynote talks, and we've been pretty much affected by the shutdown across mm-hmm. travel and, and across countries. Going uh, sticking to speaking slots and, and keynotes, have there ever been any? conferences where um, you think that this sh- just shouldn't have happened or th- this was a complete disaster and maybe the audience didn't really get anything away from it? Well, <clears throat> I haven't had really uh, anything affect me, knock on wood. Uh, 
I think that at the moment, all the conferences being postponed is probably for the better. I think that if you look at the, the general reception or general impression of conferences, they're not necessarily viewed as sort of essential, let's say. Um, but in terms of just uh, anecdotes, um, what happened once, and, and this was the first time I met you as well. It was back in, in Dubai, and this was a fair few years ago. But there was this guy, I'm not sure if you remember him, but um, there was this guy who was the CEO of a big company. and one of the things that you realize very early on as a keynote speaker is that you basically it's your job to make everyone involved look as good as possible, right? Not you, but everyone involved. So that's the organizer, the tech people, and so on and so forth. So the first thing you do is you ensure that you're basically the tech people's best friend, right? So if anything happens, then they're going to basically fix the problem and help you out. Now, this CEO didn't. He basically thought that they were beneath him, um, and he insisted on using his own laptop, even though they expressly a sort of advice against that of course he wasn't sort of concerned with with the opinions of those people so anyway he went on stage and this was uh, i think it was something like 1500 people 1300 people something like that dubai uh, yeah. and his laptop broke down and the tech people refused to help him because basically he'd been such a dick to them and i remember him being on stage for a good five minutes trying to sort out the problem couldn't fix it and had to leave the stage and there, that's one of those things where you just go, yeah, you sorry, dude, but you just fucked up. It's, that's so, you know, for someone who does speaking for a living or part of my living, it's it's such a clear move of someone who's an amateur. Right? He thought he was basically above everyone else, and lo and behold, he wasn't. And, you know, he basically was made a fool for everyone to see. Uh, so I've seen that. I've also seen people collapse on stage because they're so nervous. Um, things like that, but I haven't had any real clusterfucks. What about you? So probably likewise. I mean, I I haven't had any. Actually, no. Actually, come to think of it, last year I was at a big um, digital conference event in um, Barcelona. Mm-hmm. We had um, agreed a slot on um, Internet of Things um, and the future and what it was going to look like. And I emailed across my presentation. And when I got there five minutes before the, my um, slot, uh, I said, everything all right, everything's set up. And they were like, well, we don't have your presentation. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, oh, cool, okay. So we actually had to spend a good 20 minutes of my uh, keynote slot uh, trying to email my presentation from my phone because I traveled pretty light that day. Yeah. So all I had was my phone on me. Um, and uh, get through via my phone from a copy that I had on my phone. And, of course, we had all sorts of firewall issues because they couldn't accept external emails mm-hmm. from a Gmail address, tried to sort of create a Google uh, shared document from a drive, and, and, of course, that failed as well. Um, ended up emailing it to a, a completely different third party just so they could access it on their laptop, stick it on a USB stick, and then um, hand it to the conference advisors. And then I literally had 15 minutes to ramp through um, <laughs> a presentation that was 30 minutes long just to maybe keep time yeah, yeah. Um, so it wouldn't impact the rest of the event. So uh, it was a bit of speed talking there. It does teach you not to be too complacent in terms of um, the organizers having everything in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a pretty big conference as well because it was one that was maybe about 20,000 attendees yeah. um, milling around uh, huge halls. So I, I did kind of expect uh, things to go a little bit more smoothly, but 
hindsight is a wonderful thing mm-hmm. and uh, this time I'm going to be armed with about three different USB sticks yeah, yeah. Uh, five different phones and ten laptops yeah. you know yeah I was going to say um, like that's why you always bring a USB stick uh, I yeah, was in Ireland yeah. a couple of weeks ago and I did a couple of talks and, and for one of them I always run through the presentation just to see that everything is working right in the, in the morning and what they've done they've done is they've taken the, my presentation turned it into a PDF which meant that all everything oh, right, yeah, okay. everything was on screen at the same time. All the animations were gone and everything. It was just like, oh, sorry, take this stick. You're going to have to redo that and turn into PPTX or rather take this PPTX and actually use that. Um, so, yes, it's one of those things. I mean, always bring a USB stick if you're a speaker. That's a good piece of advice. So if we, go, if we jump back into um, branding and things, mm-hmm. we've both worked well, uh, we've both worked for large corporations and small organizations and startups. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've worked specifically with a few startups and I've mentored startups and accelerators specifically on marketing and branding and um, and product management. Now, do you see a difference in approach in terms of how big brands and startups treat their marketing and their brand strategy? <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. And, and it's something that they kind of have to. One of the biggest I shouldn't say unspoken truths because so few people seem to have realized this. But the thing about the difference between big brands and startups is that they act the way that they do kind of because they have to. All right. So if you're a small brand or a startup, well, if we're being completely honest, most of them are not going to have a fucking clue what they're supposed to be doing. Right. Because they may have an idea for product, but they have no idea whether that product is going to work, where the demand is going to come from. Uh, what it's going to look like, you know, how tomorrow is going to be like. And that's basically why they effectively have to be agile and they have to be nimble. It's because, you know, that's the, the only way that they're going to be able to survive. They're also going to have to do more short-term stuff because they're going to have to increase their short-term cash flow. And that, by the way, is a, sort of a, a piece of advice as well. If you're into the whole Bennett and Field thing about, you know, long-term versus short-term and activation versus brand building, if you want to get C-suite buying for your company, speak in terms of cash flow instead. So activation would be essentially acceleration of short-term cash flow and brand building would be the stabilization of future cash flow. But anyway, no, but the point is that that these small brands, they again, they act the way that they do kind of because they have to. They're going to do more emergent strategy. They're going to discover things along the way. They're going to have to do iterations, learn, adapt, and so on and so forth. If you're a large company, on the other hand, and you hear these things of you know how a big brand should act like a startup, that will be completely stupid because you've got all these you know, things in place that you have to factor in. For example, the fact that you may have tens and tens and thousands of employees, you're going to have to do a bit of strategic planning just to get ensure that everyone's, you know, on board and pulling in the same direction. You're going to have to do financial planning. You're going to have to do uh, HR planning. You're going to have to do more quote-unquote deliberate strategy. So you can still be agile. I mean, if you work, if you work in teams, for example, and you can utilize agile within a large TD context, which is usually what's called an umbrella strategy. But you can't turn, you know, one company into another one and just go, yeah, we want to be the next Google or we want to be the next whatever, right? Every company will, per definition, be unique. So you need to understand your context, not anyone else's your context. Once you do that, then you can do, you know, whatever you need to do to to survive and thrive and the whole thing. But you know, again, in, in the grand scheme of things, and absolutely, startups and big brands are completely different, completely different. And so, you know, because they play by different rules, they're going to have to do different things. Do you think financial constraint um, with uh, with startups 
gives them an edge in terms of how creative they can be or forces them to be a little bit more creative than um, a big brand, for example? Ah, see, that's a very interesting point because, of course, some people would define creativity as, as what you can do basically under constraints. Uh, but it's also true, of course, that, that human beings are the most creative um, under periods of crisis. And if you work for a startup, that's basically what you're doing. You're in a perpetual state of crisis because, again, you don't know where your supply – rather, demand is going to come from and so on and so forth. You don't have any processes in place. Now, the problem with it, with that is that you have management consultants who take this and basically withdraw it from that context and just go, okay, so from this, we're going to create this universal rule that – and then we're going to put it into a big brand. But whatever that universal rule might be, it might be agile. It might be fear by management. I've seen that. Um, there's a guy – whose name unfortunately escapes me at the moment, but he wrote a piece for the Harvard Business Review where he basically said that um, what actually drives innovation in small companies, which is, I mean, it's it's partially true, but it is that fear of, of essentially fucking up and not being able to survive the day. And, and it's, it's that, again, creativity under moments of, of crisis. Um, but then he said, so because of this, effectively, if you're working for a big brand, you should tell your all of your employees that if there's uh, innovations, whatever it might be, if they don't succeed, they are fired. And you just go, yeah, but that's you can't do that. That's not how it works. You know, you can't take that startup culture and just put it into a large uh, company like that. It's not as if startups want to so essentially fight for their lives. All startups want to be successful, obviously. Yeah, but you know, and you know, commercially, you can't for a big brand, you can't become complacent. But nonetheless, you can't just, you know, figuratively speaking, put a gun against your employees' heads and just go, yeah, innovate or die, because they won't. You know? Yeah. No. No. I completely agree. Um, I mean, it, it's, yeah. It's, sorry, but but I mean, what are your experience? Same similar experience or? Yeah. So um, I so when I used to work um, freelance as a, a program manager and, and worked in business change, uh, I found the same parallels that you mentioned in terms of almost stripping out creativity and being able to do things differently and building strategies around, how would you put it, one-size-fits-all kits. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that the the, the big four, for example, that I've always come across in, in other organizations when doing projects, um, they bring with them their kit bag, which has, you know, the, the cookie cutter sort of uh, jigsaw pieces. Um, and you end up encountering organizations who have all the same kind of processes in place. Yeah. Um, and then they complain that they can't differentiate. And you think, well, no wonder you can't differentiate if you are basically copying every single other competitor and how they run their business because you've been sold. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, and also, I mean, when you try to do that, there are a bunch of issues with that. Now, firstly, you can just think about your own, how you judge other people, right? So we have a tendency as human beings to, to judge ourselves on our intentions, but everyone else based on their behavior. And the practice of the matter is, and this is an exercise I run all the time with clients, but so let's say that, I usually work with C-suites and boards, I should probably say. And let's say that I ask, you know, CEO, CMO, whatever it is, something like along these lines. If I were to ask 100 employees of yours what the strategy is, how many, many of them would you say would be able to actually define your strategy? And I'll give you sort of a spoiler. It's usually somewhere between 7 to 8%. So seven or eight people out of 100 can usually define strategy. They're probably going to be found 
higher up the proverbial food chain. All right, let's now do the same. And that's, by the way, that's with the benefit of, of understanding the business model, working with the company, you know, transparency in this, that, and the other. Now let's run the same exercise, but for your competitor instead, or a company that, you know, you admire, like Google, Amazon, whatever it might be. How many of, of those 100 people would be able to actually properly define that company's strategy? And then we're down to zero, right? So the problem is that when you're looking at other companies and you go, okay, where they do this or they do that, and they do whatever, um, you're probably going to cherry pick all the wrong things. It's, it's something to do with cost and ambiguity, which basically means that you, within a company, you're usually unsure what actually leads to something else, right? Because you act within complex competitive spaces. And if you look out at other companies, there's a quite a real danger of just picking out the wrong things. It's actually one of the strategic benefits of causal ambiguity is that if you know what you're doing, you can actually ensure that people can't copy you. Um, but it, it leads to a sort of lowest common denominator approach. And if you take it to strategy as well, one of the problems there is that if you're just copying your competitors, then not only are you just, you know, you're, all, you're only ever going to get to be essentially second best or tie. You're never going to be able to win. And not only that, but you're going to be predictable. So trying to copy other firms is effectively a recipe for failure, not success. Oh, yeah. I liken it to um, a domino effect, essentially, where if one fails, one business fails, the rest of them will probably follow suit because they've copied them or copied processes, copied strategy ad nauseum to the point where, if, like I said, if one fails, the rest of them are likely to fall at the same time. Yeah, I mean, going. Yeah, sorry, I was just going to say, but but just looking at so what companies do, do other companies aspire to be? Well, companies like Amazon, for example, right? Amazon has access to capital that is so cheap that it's unique in business history. Now you won't be able to have that because you're not Amazon. So commercially, or rather, consequently, uh, if you're trying to imitate Amazon's approach to innovation, that's a recipe for failure for you. It's a recipe for success for them, but not for you. So again, you can't. You have to factor in a bunch of things, and, and the fact of the matter is that most people. And I'm being a bit of a dick here, but most people don't understand the basics of business analysis. They don't understand halo effects and so on and so forth. And not only that, but if we're being brutally honest, most companies they don't actually succeed because of their competencies. Their competencies they success or succeed rather. I need to get my grammar back in place. They succeed despite their incompetencies. Okay, so if you're trying to mimic other companies, you might be mimicking just essentially bad behavior, luck, and randomness. Talking about behavior, then, mm -hmm. when when we look at fundamentals of um, just basically marketing and brand strategy and understanding how markets work, how much of that is driven by uh, consumer behavior? Um, markets work well. You're only going to have to look at consumer behavior or not only but mainly going to have to look at, at consumer behavior because the fact is that behavior will drive attitude a lot more than attitude will drive behavior so people will say one thing and they'll they will do something completely different uh especially depending on how the survey has been sort of put together right so if we look for example at um brand purpose at the moment which is the, the, this notion that that brands are out to save the world right or should save the world because apparently every consumer in the world is demanding it although as i've asked a fair few people you know doing my talks is how many people can hand on heart name all the purposes of all the brands in their fridge i've yet to come across a single person who has been able to do that 
right? Which then begs the question, well, why the hell did you buy those things then? Um, but, but usually the question goes something like this. All things being equal, would you buy a company that stands for something that you believe in over one that doesn't? Now, usually the score is around 90%, 90-91%. The fact that it's not 100 is baffling to me because what it basically means is that people will actively avoid companies that stand for the same things that they do, all things being equal. But of course, the, the, big, the big thing is that things are never equal, Okay. There are other things like, for example, you will buy the companies that you've heard about, you know, about the most. Uh, you'll, you're more likely to buy the biggest uh, companies or biggest brands within that segment. It's called the law of double jeopardy. Again, things are never equal. People buy off of all kinds of reasons. You know, if they're, let's take Coca-Cola, for example. You might buy Coke because you need to be refreshed or thirsty or to get the kids to shut up or to have, you know, something on the table for dinner because you don't like wine or maybe it's just something to do with christmas there's a gazillion different reasons why you buy things uh it's not going to be because coca-cola is running a campaign in which they have a bunch of millennials being all millennially or whatever the term might be you know what i mean it's it's you need to look at actual purchase behavior look at you need to look at what is called negative banal distribution you know, law about moderation you need to say essentially understand how markets work if you're a marketer which I would recommend starting by reading the book How Brands Grow by Professor Barney Sharp. And then get on to the other stuff. The problem with marketing is that it usually ignores the fundamentals of how markets work. And then it just focuses instead on, you know, cool campaigns or VR tech or AR tech or whatever it might be. And just like, yeah, but people buy off of mental and physical availability. Understand that first. Understand the fundamentals first. And then you can get into the other stuff. But few people do. Do you ascribe to the whole market segmentation? So we have millennials, we have Gen X, mm. we have Gen Y, we've got Gen Z coming up. I've just seen someone describe this particular generation who are going through the the, the virus um, pandemic as coronials, and <laughs> I, I really just want to leap out of a fucking window yeah, yeah. at that I point. Um, do you really uh, ascribe to to all of these kind of? Uh, to me, it's like cheap segmentations and and boxing types of behaviors into these kind of sort of generational um, labels? Well, I mean, first and foremost, if you believe in segmentation, and I'll get back to what I mean by that. The original idea of a segment is that it's, it's everyone within that segment is the same, right? And everyone outside of that segment is going to be different to those within it. That's the, the, the general idea of it all, right? Now, the problem with using demographics such as sort of um, generations and those kinds of cohorts as segments is that by definition, they're the exact opposite because all millennials are going to be different. You can, and that's by the way, why, why all millennials in surveys are all kinds of things. So, you know, they, they're against, for example, they're against having, you know, being sort of driven by monetary means, for example, right. Or they're all driven by monetary means. Um, they're all against politics, so they are all love politics, or whatever it might be. And and you can basically cherry pick stuff, facts about millennials, right? fact within uh, inverted commas, just because they are all different within that you know, sort of group. And because they're all different within that group, they're exactly the same as everyone else, which basically means that again, what this would be then, you know, by the very definition, what a segment would be, it's the exact opposite of that segment. Now, in terms of segmentation, however, the problem is that a whole lot of segmentation is kind of pointless, 
because again, people are broadly the same. And the reason why we want to perceive differences, it goes back to, well, you can explain by by, by psychology. For example, if you look at a paper that I think it was originally by Ernest Crawley, which is a British, uh, um, he was a British anthropologist, I think. Uh, and I know that, that Sigmund Freud built upon it in, in uh, a study called the, the Narcissism of the Minor Difference. But basically what it says is that we are psych- psychologically primed to look for differences within people, right? Even if those people are as similar as doppelgangers. And this is why, for example, you have you know villages or towns or cities that are you know a mile apart, but they're completely different. If you go to one city and ask them about the other city, oh, no, they're all like this and all like that, right? And they will always be different from us and particularly me, but they're all the same. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is that because we're always looking for differences, for example, a, a friend of mine, a guy called Weimer Snyders, he was, he was running a test on the differences between men and women. So we're talking about segmentation basics here, right? Men, women. 98 point, what is it, 98.7% the same. And then you look at, okay, so what would the difference be, be then if you, instead of taking actual men and women, you would just plot random people, just flip a coin. It's a man or a woman, right? And you put those into two groups. Guess what the difference would be? The exact same. It was 98 point whatever it was similar. So again, you're just looking at essentially random patterns and, and all these perceived differences turn out not to be differences at all. Now, of course, having said that, you wouldn't for example, target a meat product to vegans. That would be quite stupid. On the other hand, if your corn, you know, the, the meat substitute, they originally targeted uh, vegans and vegetarians because it was a meat substitute. And that was about 7% of the UK population. Then someone realized, hmm, maybe we should actually position this as a healthy alternative instead. We can actually reach meat eaters as well. And all of a sudden... Uh, you're looking at 70% of UK households instead of seven. Yeah. And that was one of the most important growth decisions that they ever, ever made. So, you know, traditional marketing is going to be segmentation, targeting, positioning. But if again, if you go back to how brands grow and Professor Barry Sharp and what we actually know about markets, a lot of that stuff is turned out to be just completely false. And segments, segmentation is, the way that it's usually done is, is, um, not necessarily all that helpful. And actually, I'll give you a very brief anecdote of something that just illustrate how stupid this can be. So a colleague of mine, he's working with a, with a client who uh, sells, they sell um, sunscreen. And <clears throat> usually what you do if, if you work, if you're a good marketing strategist, you'll understand the business strategy and the overarching goals of the organization, right? So he did. So he went and looked at, okay, so what, what are the, the uh, targets for the organization this year? Well, it's, you know, increased sales by this much. Okay, so how much of that is marketing supposed to be responsible for? Well, it's that much. Hmm. Okay. This means that we can calculate how many people we need to get to buy the thing, right? It's a, quite an easy calculation. He goes into the analytics department of this company and goes, hey, so have you guys looked at the sales uh, objectives for the year? Uh, no, we haven't. But we've done our segmentation and our targeting. Right. Okay. But how about this, guys? If you just go back and speak to finance and look at the overall goal for the organization, I'll come back tomorrow, right? And we'll have a talk about the, the targeting and the segmentation. Right. It comes back the next day. Have you spoken to finance? Yes, we have. Have you changed segmentation and targeting? No, we haven't. Okay. So what's your, what's your segmentation targeting based on? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to target 
uh, single mothers with two children who live in uh, major cities because they're the most the most likely to buy this sunscreen. Right. But you know how much we're supposed to sell this year, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's just calculate how many of these women there are. Well, it's X people. Okay. And then we look at how much we need to sell for the year. It's Y amount. And what they realized that was that each of these women had to have not two children, but a thousand children each. And they had to buy, what was it, 600 cases of sunscreen for each child. And the average, um, average purchase of sunscreen was, I think, 1.2 per year. And just go, yes, so effectively what you've done is you've created a segmentation of targeting that is by definition or rather automatically, it will not be able to reach the goals of the organization. You're going to have to reach a broader audience than that. And then it's the the sort of the, the most common line that I hear from clients is basically what he heard, heard as well, which is, oh, we didn't think about that. Well, it's your fucking job too. You know what I mean? And we need to understand the basics first. And, and again, few people, too far too people do. You have a, a manifesto as part of uh, Rouser. Mm. What what is that exactly? So the the Rouser manifesto was originally um, me and a guy called Gary Rivers, uh, who's now with SKF. We basically just put down our thoughts in writing, and it wasn't a piece of content marketing at all. It was just to essentially hone our thinking, right? And so start doing that every year and just put it out there to let people criticize it so we can basically improve and, you know, polish it. And it was astonishingly well-received. In fact, so much so that um, I get maybe an email or two, probably a month from agency heads and, and CMOs and stuff where they just say that, oh, it's it's such a fantastic piece of paper, which is, you know, of course, incredibly flattering. And, and we had one CMO a couple of weeks ago said that it was the best document he read all last year, which is, of course, incredible. But but yeah, but basically what, what the document does is that it, it traditionally or historically has broken down um, strategy, tactics, and brand, and basically explained, you know, we tried to put marketing into wider business context and um, broken down sort of key concepts for people to understand. This year, it's going to be better than ever, although, of course, I would say that, but um, it's going to be focusing uh, even more on on strategy this year, and it's going to be breaking down, for example, the difference between emergent strategy and, and deliberate strategy and global strategy work and those kinds of things. And it's sitting around 45, 50 pages, uh, PDF, basically. And it has also you know, recommended readings and all those kinds of things. So it's, it's again, it's, it's like a, a short sort of condensed view of, of, of strategy and, and marketing as a whole um, so that people can read 50 pages instead of 5,000. You and I, well, certainly I uh, so spend a lot of time in the tech uh, side of uh, of the business, mm. and I recently saw that in Europe alone, not not the global market, but certainly the European landscape for Martech solutions had something around two and a half thousand different products, mm. and to me. <clears throat> it becomes almost nonsensical in a way and very confusing for people who work in marketing and brand to come across, you know, two and a half different thousand options to execute or help them execute um, a marketing campaign or a strategy in one shape or form. Mm. Do you think the, uh, I guess, decoupling in a sense 
different types of products has become almost too fragmented now? Um, I think it's one of those things where, again, because people don't understand necessarily the fundamentals and the broader things, they, they tend to sort of end up navel-gazing and being too focused on the shiny new tech stuff. And the problem with that is that exactly like you described is that you have 250,000 or whatever solutions that you're going to have at your disposal. Which one is the one you need to go for? Of course, as well, they're all going to say that they're essential to your marketing. Probably few, if any of them really uh, are. But if you don't know the sort of the, the, again, the fundamentals, I keep banging on about, but if you don't understand the fundamentals, you're not going to be able to sort of pick out the stuff that is actually important to you. Which is what basically what's it's, you're going to end up being just confused and bewildered and stressed out, and you're typically going to end up with a bunch of solutions that probably won't really help you. And you know, understanding the basics goes for Martech as well. If you're a, a marketer and you work within, you know, well, these days probably marketing full stop, you need to understand the Martech space, Martech basics too. And you need to understand how online behavior is different to offline behavior. You need to understand bot rates. You need to understand ad fraud. You need to understand, you know, how online stuff tends to focus more on heavy buyers and light buyers, so on and so forth. But if you do that, then again, choosing, picking and choosing among the old, all the MarTech solutions can be easier too. You're going to understand why you need one tool and not another one. But if you don't and you just... And this is also one of those, it's not necessarily true for just marketing, but I, I would argue that's true for most businesses that a lot of people working or a lot of people in general, I mean, God knows we see that with the coronavirus at the moment is that they have no, they have no talent for critical thinking at all, right? Which means that they take everything at face value. So you'll see people go, yes, yeah, so um, we need to do Facebook advertising, for example. Right. So why do you need to do that? Well, I read this study. Okay, that's interesting. Who commissioned the study? Who actually wrote the study? It was Facebook. And what was the conclusion? We need to run Facebook ads. And you just go, you, th- you think? <laughs> and, and you'd be amazed how often I come across this. Um, and I mean, and as well, let's be honest, Google and Facebook are, you can think about them whatever, however you like, but they're not stupid companies, right? They cherry pick some of the brightest people on the planet. So they are on most of the sort of marketing industry boards and uh, those kinds of things. And so they have basically a finger in every soup, so to speak. Um, and you need to be aware of that. That That's not to say that Facebook or Google can't massively help your, your marketing, especially online advertising a lot. But nonetheless, you need to think about these things critically. Um, and that goes for, for anything. I mean, you, of course, work with, within tech a lot more than I do, but and you do a lot more tech conferences than I do as well. But did you see the same things? I mean, for me, it's 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 a rather interesting coincidence how many people will stand on stage and go, yes, I know the answer to all your problems, even though I haven't really asked you about them. And the solution is, drum roll here, whatever I'm selling at the moment. And you go, yeah, who da thunk, right? Is that something that you see too? Or am I just, you know, going completely off piece here? So sticking on the conference side, I'm incredibly critical of organizers, uh, event organizers who invite people to give a talk, which is essentially a sales pitch. Yeah. Um, there's no unbiased kind of thought leadership um, or appraisal of what's going on in the industry. And some of the exciting examples that they've seen it inevitably turns into exactly like you say, 
your problem is this. You they also you know they spend twenty five minutes convincing the audience that they have this particular problem, and then five minutes into the and we have the solution to mm. your problem. And here's my business card. Please come and collect it at reception. And that really annoys me. The other thing I find is that people or businesses in general, especially the buyers who have rather large coffers and and have been told to spend it are literally influenced by whatever new piece of shiny tech comes along, usually driven by analyst reports who are obviously paid to play and and whoever pays them the most gets the top slots. Um, And that has really annoyed me. That's annoyed me for over a decade now. Um, I came from a different side of tech um, in the business process management suite space uh, originally when I worked with vendors and um, I used to do a lot of blogging online about industry trends and one of the things I locked swords with on numerous occasions were people who absolutely verbatim ate up what was written in these reports um, as something that was um, independent or uh, unbiased Mm -hmm. Um, and invariably they would go away and buy this solution, spend millions of dollars um, on them and perhaps get a, a tenth of the functionality or, or use a tenth yeah. of the functionality. So it was almost like buying a Ferrari to go down <clears throat> to the shops just for a pint of milk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, those kind of things really, really, they still irk me to this day. Uh-huh. Um, there's a lot of shiny tech and magpie kind of thinking at the moment. Yeah. I, I would really love, to, you know, I spend a lot of my time speaking to clients to try and sort of uh, steer them in the you know back to some sense of reality mm-hmm. but it can be quite difficult especially when they read white papers like you say a white paper commissioned by a particular company although it's been you know quote unquote independently written by a PR agency yeah. or, or something like that but it has been commissioned by uh, a particular company to come to a particular set of conclusions that obviously put, paint them in a good light yeah, yeah. or their solution as the, the answer yeah and I don't know whether when we will ever get out of that kind of thing. I think that I have a hypothesis about this. It's basically that people are, of course, stressed out by change. And this goes back to sort of evolutionary psychology because, of course, you know, way, way, way back when uh, change was connected to potential danger and, and not even that, but, but potential death, right? So we get stressed out by change. So, but not only that, but we're actually primed to look for this narrative of change all the time and how everything is changing. And the problem is that everything is changing sort of in objective terms, in absolute terms, because change is sort of a function of, of the movement of time, right? So you could argue absolutely that there is no moment in time without change. Now, the problem is that you have to separate absolute change from relative change because they're completely different things. And just to explain what they are, right? So absolute change is the difference between the new states and the old state, right? So it's about impact and isolation. Relative change is the absolute change compared to the old state. So it's about impact in context. So just to, to illustrate what I mean by that is that if you take virtual reality, for example, now a lot of people, they actually don't know this, but we had virtual reality in the 1930s. It was used to train pilots for the Second World War. And then it disappeared. It came back again in the 60s, then used by NASA, but they disappeared. It came back again in the 90s disappeared and so it's recently come back and it's already on its way out again now if you look at all these iterations in absolute terms the change has been quite significant but if you look at it in 
relative business change, relative change in terms of business value, it's been absolutely nothing. So when people go, you know, well, virtual reality is the future of marketing, that's not true. It comes and goes every third year. It's basically tuberculosis. But the point is that you have to separate absolute change and relative change. And in order to evaluate change, you need to understand your context. Because again, relative change is about absolute change or rather impact in, in, in context or absolute change compared to the old state. And if you don't understand your context, which again, people don't do, then they're going to be stressed out because they think that every change, everything that is happening is basically going to kill them. So they have to change the next new thing, you know, the whole magpie marketing, like you were, you were talking about. And all of a sudden you're investing millions and millions of pounds into stuff that, you know, if you're lucky, you'll still get to the shop to buy milk. But if you're unlucky, you're basically going to be stuck with a car that you don't even, you don't even know how to open the door of it. You know what I mean? Um, let's take it back to something a little bit lighter, I guess. Mm-hmm. What's the best bit of branding that you've actually seen in the last maybe 12 months? Something that you wish you probably could have, you should have been involved in, I guess. Uh, I've seen some some interesting, really interesting things that are, because branding to me is all about distinctive brand assets. So it's, it's effectively stuff that is um, really on brand and really distinctive. And you see immediately what it is and what the brand is. And for example, if you take a brand like Guinness, they're absolutely brilliant at it. Um, I think that as well that that a lot of work that's come out of the agency uh, uncommon has been uh, remarkable. Um, which, you, of course, I'm not the only one saying that because they basically won every award this year. But well, the Guinness campaigns I've I've really enjoyed. I enjoyed some of the um, tourism for Australia campaigns. Uh, there was a brilliant campaign in, in um, Sweden recently for for a big fintech company called Klarna. Uh, where they used Lady Gaga for a campaign. And it wasn't so much influencer marketing as them using what they are known for, which is a, sort of a, a creative tone, I suppose, and, and the color pink and their font. And it was just, it was quite breathtaking to see. And they put a lot of money behind it as well, obviously, because if you bring in Lady Gaga, she will come free. Um, but it was a very nice campaign. It's also, I mean, it's an interesting point because, of course, one of the things that, that, people are quick to do is that they're quick to point out the stuff that they don't like. And few of them actually dare to point out the stuff that they do like, because then there's a sort of, they might get criticized for liking something or they might be quote unquote wrong or whatever it might be. But then again, there have been some really poor choices when it comes to branding recently as well. Jesus wept. Just look at the Burger King campaign, for example. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, the thing is like, like, I've met the CMO of Burger King, uh, and he's a very very nice guy. And they're saying that this increased sales and this, that, the other. But here's the thing, and, and I'll go slightly off piece here. But when you're analyzing any kind of business decision, whether it's campaigns or strategic, you know, purchasing, whatever it might be, right? And this is going to sound really counterintuitive to people, so I'm going to explain what I mean. But you cannot judge that decision based on the outcome, okay? Because what that means is that it's essentially like asking someone who you know lost money on a football game, for example. If you knew then what you know now, would you change your bet? Well, of course they would, right? The problem is that if we just based decisions based on the outcome, we're, it's basically 2020, right? It's, it's hindsight bias. And we're going to fall into all kinds of halo effects and bias traps. But the problem is that when you, you're basically... Um, expecting whatever you did to be the reason for whatever then happened. 
And it might be because of a lot of things that had nothing to do with you. And it might might not be for the reasons that you think. So what we have to do is we have to judge decisions based on what they knew at the time or whoever made the decision or whatever group that was. So we're looking at strategic context and, you know, whatever else. Right? So strategy is about effectively improving the odds of success. You can never guarantee an outcome because markets are random, uh, but you can improve the odds of one or improve the likelihood of one. So if you look at the, the Burger King campaign, so what do we know about how people perceive advertising? Firstly, they don't actively think about brands. The entire point of brand, or one of the major points of brand anyway, is to effectively reduce the cognitive burden. You're just trying to associate something with something else. As Rory Sutherland famously likes to put it, McDonald's, they're largely successful for being essentially very good at not being totally shit. So if you're in a new city where you have no idea what the restaurants are and you see a McDonald's, you might go, well, actually, I'm going to go to McDonald's because at least there I'm not going to get food poisoning, right? And similarly, so people don't think actively think about these kinds of campaigns. So what Burger King decided to do was actually do the opposite. So they go, oh, actually, we're going to make people actively think about the thing. So we're going to put up a moldy burger, which people are going to go, oh, actually, that looks disgusting. I'm not going to have a burger. Because, again, going back to evolutionary psychology, anything that's got mold on it, we try to stay away from because it might kill us, right? And then not only that, but but all the people who are going to see this ad, they're going to think, oh, actually, that kind of reminds me of that thing. I Maybe I saw that thing on the internet. It was something to do with how McDonald's burgers have, they don't age and they don't get mold. I think I maybe, oh, yeah, oh, yes, of course. And that means I should go to Burger King. And you go, you know, objectively speaking, if you look at that decision when it was made, it was a really piss poor decision, pardon my French, but it was. Now, it can still turn out to work, but that's not the point. You can't go, oh, well, you know, whether it works or not, we'll see. We'll, we'll judge the thing when the, once the results are in. No, you have to judge it based on what they knew at the time. That's just how you're going to have to – that's how you do business analysis. So, yeah, I was going to say that, that it's one of those things that, that if you work within advertising or marketing, you have to ask yourself when it comes to these things, is the brand strong because the sales are or the sales strong because the brand is? And if you can't answer that question, you're going to have a bit of a problem. And the, the what, what usually happens is people go, oh, no, but the sales are strong because the brand is. But actually, more often than not, it's the opposite way around. And and exactly to your point, a lot of the stuff that, that consumers see and, and you know people see in general is that they don't remember the thing and they don't care, which is basically why you need to stick to the basics again. You know, the whole there's this whole thing about, oh, just make the logo bigger. Yeah, but sometimes you kind of have to because if people don't see that it's your ad, you know, there will be no recollection of, of, of that advertising at all. Now, of course, what that I mean, doesn't mean, I mean, there are certain companies that will actually play on this and go, oh, therefore advertising doesn't work or it's pointless, which is complete bullshit. I mean, I recently saw a social selling agency that said, oh, if you just look at the biggest companies in the UK that you know went under, they all ran advertising campaigns. Yeah, but all the companies that succeeded did too. You'd still need advertising because you need to remind people that you exist. It's a weak force. But for a big brand, if you can change the sort of the, the chance of someone buying your brand from one out of 10,000 to one out of 9,999, that's still a heck of a, lot, heck of a lot of money. You know what I mean? So you're going to have to do advertising. Advertising is, is part of your, your comms, um, but it's one of many tools. It's not the only one. 
just to just to wrap up this podcast now, I want to pull you away from brand and strategy and marketing and talk about just something that you have seen in the press or the news. It doesn't have to be business related at all. Um, just something that you can maybe point the uh, listeners to um, of, of personal interest. Um, so what I'll do is I'll take something that is completely off piste uh, and uh, rather than talk about the stuff that's happening within Sweden, and, and there's a, a really important decision on the, the rights of, of women recently in the European courts, but that might not be of interest to anyone, um, although it should be. Uh, but you know, I'll take something that is instead sort of a bit uplifting and, uh, again, something that is coming straight, slightly from uh, the far edge. So one of the things that I've been doing is that, well, Basically, as you may or may not be able to know or tell, uh, I've got a slight cold, which basically means that I put myself into self-quarantine. That means you're basically stuck at home, right? With not much not much to do. So as, as any normal person would do, uh, you spend a lot of time on YouTube. And I came across this band, and this, this is one of those bands where the first time you can see this band perform, you're going to feel a bit uneasy and just going to go, hmm, I'm not sure. And then you're going to hear one more song and you're actually going to think, holy crap, this is actually quite good. And then by the third song, you're going to be sold. And it's a Japanese band called Baby Metal, which sounds really weird. And I'll give you a bit of backstory. So effectively, this is, if you're into heavy metal, you're going to like this, but you're going to have to also um, be aware of the fact that it's three well, they're in the 1020s now, but it was originally three uh, teenage girls singing. And what happened was that they were really popular in, in, in Japan and they got their first international gig. And it was at Sonisphere, I think it was, in the UK in 2014. And they were supposed to play in front of 5,000 people. And you can probably find 5,000 fans of the, this band in the UK. And for some reason or another, they were actually put on the main stage. Now, this is the stage that is usually reserved for bands like Anthrax or Metallica or Foo Fighters, right? And you have three girls who are then between the ages of 14 and 16 who are going to be singing in front of 55,000 metalheads. Most of them are just effectively there to, because you know, news had gotten out, so to speak. So effectively, they're going to be hostile. They're going to boo them and so on and so forth, right? They go on stage. By the second song, they have the crowd singing in Japanese. By the end of their set, the entire crowd is chanting, we want more, we want more. Now, this is all online. You can find the videos online. But the band is called Baby Metal. And if you just want something that's really entertaining and just a bunch of really cool kids doing stuff that they like, it's fucking amazing. So I'll just advise people to go check that out. And then they're going to think of me very differently. But it's, it's just hilarious. It's hilarious to watch. It's just, it's, it's really fun. It's just entertaining. Well, I want to thank my guest, JP, for coming on the show. Uh, JP, where can we find out more about you? Uh, so the easiest way to find me is, find me is just uh, to go on Twitter, I think. I'm quite active on Twitter. So that's uh, RouserJP, so R-O-U-S-E-R-J-P. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, but uh, Twitter is the easiest way to find me. Or um, you can go to rouser.se or you can send me an email and that's jp at rouser.se. And uh, if you want a copy of the manifesto, feel free to do that. Uh, we, it was actually 
Um, so, and I haven't really tweeted about this, but I will today, actually. Uh, it's been so successful that we had, we were originally told to put it behind a paywall. Uh, but because of the current situation and the fact that people are just sitting at home, and not only that, but they may not have as much money to spend if they're consultants or working for agencies, whatever, uh, we're actually going to make it free. But you do need to send me your email. That's not for, we're gonna, not going to use it for marketing, not going to save your email anywhere. But anyway, but we just need your email so we can actually send it to you uh, once it's finished. And it's looking to be finished probably in, uh, in May just as a heads up um but yeah so find me there and and um always happy to interact and have a chat and talk thanks jp thanks very much again for spending the time on the show you will find this podcast on anchor.fm slash theo on spotify itunes google podcasts spread the word please subscribe and we will see you next time thanks for joining us